0: We'll start the show in just a moment after a word from our sponsor. Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management and online fundraising software that helps small to medium nonprofits, just like First Tee of Greater Akron, a nonprofit that empowers kids and teens through the game of golf. After just one year with Bloomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors improved owner stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear how they did it or visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional to learn more. Again, that's bloomerang.com forward slash intentional. If you're looking for proven ways to take your fundraising results to the next level, you're in the right place. Welcome to the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast, hosted by Tammy Zonker. Tammy has trained and led thousands of nonprofit organizations to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars and is also recognized as one of America's top 20 fundraising experts. This is the podcast where Tammy equips and empowers amazing fundraising pros like you to transform your fundraising so you can transform the world. And now, Let's hear from Tammy. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Lynn Boardman. She has spent more than 30 years creating successful individual giving programs for charities, both in Canada and in the UK. Her work has spanned healthcare, international development, human rights, education and environmental causes. She's currently the Managing Director and Head of Client Services at Harvey McKinnon Associates, where she's been for nearly 20 years, working with and writing appeals for clients like Amnesty, Oxfam, Inspire, Covenant House, and numerous children's health foundations. She speaks, she strategizes, and writes about legacy fundraising whenever and wherever there's someone who will listen. And those are her words. That's how we first met. In fact, we were both speaking at a conference. Maybe it was AFP Icon?
1: I think it was Icon, possibly Toronto. It was, you know,
0: we've yes. both done those. We've both yeah. done those for sure. And
1: so Harvey introduced yes. us. Yes. Yeah. And Sam LaFraud, I, was... I think, was there at the same time. So always a, yes. always a wonderful meeting of minds. Always. And so like
0: heartlifting. Yes. Yeah. So obviously, I'm a big fan and was impressed with Lynn from the very start and continued to be impressed and inspired by her again to this day, many, many years now. And the feeling
1: is incredibly mutual, I'm sure.
0: <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. She's an amazing mom, a good friend, and newsflash, she's co-hosting a brand new podcast called Raise and Shine. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. We're thrilled to have you. First, let's just talk about your new podcast. What's the inspiration and what do you want to accomplish with it? Sure,
1: brand new podcast. Thank you very much for giving me a second to talk about it. It's called Raise and Shine and a couple of unique things. The unique thing is my co-presenter, Louise Campbell, who's the Lionsgate Hospital Foundation here in Vancouver, Canada, is actually a childhood friend. I think I met first when we were five and it was either kindergarten or it was brownies. And we have had many a fine adventure together, including as adults moving to the UK and diving into the fundraising world there, where both of us learned a lot of what we know. And now we wanted to launch a podcast very specifically to amplify and invite the voices of donors. So I think the things that's possibly a little bit unique with this one amongst many amazing fundraising podcasts is that each episode features a donor. So we're interviewing a donor. And it's going to be all sorts of different types of donors, major donors, wonderful community donors. And I'm going to be particularly excited to interview some legacy supporters as well.
0: I love that. And that has been a missing voice in the podcast world, I think. I don't know of any other podcast that's doing what you are setting out to do. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: the first episode was launched just earlier this week and there's two more coming up pretty rapidly and then we'll be scheduling them after that. And I think the easiest place to find them is through LinkedIn. So if you just look for the raise and shine podcast and we are also very open to people who are donors themselves, who might want to come on or have particular questions that they'd like us to ask donors when we're interviewing them, please send us your feedback. Awesome. And I
0: did, it was very easy. I went to LinkedIn, I searched on raise and shine and up it came and I clicked the little cross that says follow. And so I won't miss an episode, and I encourage our listeners to do the same. Thank you, Tammy. Absolutely. All right. So let's talk about one of your many areas of expertise and a great love of yours, which is legacy giving.
1: You're right. Legacy giving is my favorite type of fundraising and my favorite area of fundraising. And when people ask me why, I've kind of realized that it's because it gives, then I'm going to use weird words like average and normal are just terrible but i think you'll know what i mean with respect and love to all of us who are average and normal it gives people donors who have never thought of themselves as having a lot of money with which to support the causes they hold dear it gives them an opportunity to really make a significant gift to something that they hold dear and to work that they want to continue into the future i think somebody i present to on legacies with a lot is David Kravenchak, who's a mutual friend of ours, Tammy. And he mentions often that if you look at the numbers, the average bequest left by a legacy supporter is actually higher than the average gift given by the folks that we call major gift owners. So I always find that very inspiring. So yeah, that's my very favorite area of fundraising.
0: I love that. And you know, when we talk about engaging the community and honoring gifts at every level, So many times it is about honoring maybe donors who have given more modestly in their lifetime, who, as you just shared and illuminated, can give so significantly at the end of life. So beautiful.
1: Absolutely. And if we do it properly, also deeply meaningful and joy bringing to them, right, and families. I just think it's possibly one of the most feel-good parts of fundraising. And was it Kay Sprinkle Grace who used to talk about our Mm -hmm. fundraising brokers? I really do think that's an area of fundraising where we really can Mm -hmm. be dream brokers for people.
0: You know, I just want to unpack that just a teensy bit more because I think so often we as fundraisers, we think about legacy giving as when someone's dying, you know, and it being Mm -hmm. a difficult conversation. But the way that you just described it is so lovely and so beautiful that in that context. It is one of the most honoring, lovely, meaningful conversations you can possibly have.
1: I think so. This is something that just happened in my personal life. As you were speaking, I thought I have a close friend whose brother died tragically and unexpectedly very, very quickly. And of course, the family's absolutely devastated. But this is something she just discovered was that in his memory, a significant gift, in part from his estate, the family has decided to give that to one of his passions, which was the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, I believe. And it has made her feel so good. It has made the family feel so good Mm -hmm. and so proud, right? So even looking to head to a time where you know there's going to be sadness. What a fabulous light that you can shine into the darkness, right? The sort of pride from families, the way that makes them feel good in a time where they really need to feel good, I think is quite beautiful.
0: Yeah, it truly is. Lynn, it seems like starting and scaling a legacy giving program is really hard to do for so many organizations, especially smaller ones, maybe midsize organizations. We all know it's important, but the problem is it's rarely urgent. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's in
1: that quadrant, right? When we have our quadrant, <laughs> exactly. It's in that quadrant of important but not urgent, yes, it
0: gets kind of pushed aside because of the pressing grant deadline or an event deadline or some fill in the blank priority. Tell us how to get legacy giving started with all the competing priorities, or if people have gotten it started,
1: how might our listeners begin to scale it in a meaningful way? Fabulous. Well, I think there's two real things there that we can if you don't mind me focusing on both of them but yes. you know, at separate times yes one is the urgency and I would say how do you as a fundraiser make the people who are holding the purse strings whether that's the board or the senior management team how do you make them see the urgency around legacy fundraising but we could call it plan giving but I'm specifically talking here legacy fundraising but gifts and wells requests and There are some very interesting numbers that could help with your discussions with the holders of the purse strings, which are that we are right now in the midst of a wealth transfer, an intergenerational wealth transfer, that in Canada is around the sum of $1 trillion and in the United States is around the sum of $30 trillion. So that is a transfer of wealth from one generation to the other. And we are in the very beginnings of that already. So there's a lot of crucial funding that could be left on the table if we are not asking our supporters to consider leaving causes they hold dear a little bit of that. But the urgency also kicks in because right at the moment, those generations of donors who are sort of like them, we call them the matures and the civics, maybe the older boomers are certainly in terms of the seniors are starting to pass away. We hate it, but it's true. And they have, to date, being the engine room of the vast majority of charities that we all work for. They are really the donors who are giving the most as a group, and they are starting to pass on. Now, we all, of course, have a goal in mind to find younger donors, but we don't really know yet whether the younger generation of donors is going to move into that position and take up that rally and cry and take up those donations the same way that previous generations did. We don't know yet, but what we do know is if we don't inspire those kind of civics and matures and senior donors and boomers into leaving a gift in their will, there could be a real, real gap in our annual program funding. So I think both of those things, knowing both of those things, can certainly increase the urgency, I think, in terms of giving resources to legacies. Now, I think in the second part of this great question is how do you start if you don't have a very big budget? The term we like to use is called the drip drip type of legacy marketing. And it is absolutely possible to start asking for legacies, well, mostly piggybacking for inexpensively or even free on things that your organization is hopefully already doing. Those are things like thinking about the direct mail appeals that you're already sending your individual supporters. That is about featuring legacies, perhaps could be in a PS, but more likely in a tick box on the reply form that is about testing out, including what we call a buck slip or a clement slip, small, cheap, little piece of paper, little addition lift element in the direct mail pack. One fabulous place that we can talk about legacies is in donor newsletters, which of course we hope all charities are doing, whether they're called newsletters or whether they're called impact reports. In every single newsletter for most of our clients that I write for at Harvey McKinnon Associates, we will always feature a legacy supporter, so a profile of a legacy supporter. Sometimes we'll feature an interview with a family member of somebody who has left us and has left a bequest and how proud they are of their mom or their dad or whoever that was. And certainly in thank you letters, another wonderful place to speak about legacies. We're also, of course, featuring them more and more in email campaigns, on websites, and increasingly dabbling in social media requests as well. So all of these places can carry a legacy message, and most of them are already happening, or hopefully are happening. The reason, going back to why we call it the drip drip type of legacy messaging for a second, We know that there are certain times that people will make or update their will, and those are to do with life events like getting married, having children, having grandchildren, even buying a house, even going on a large trip, and on the death of a spouse. Those are the kind of key moments that people will update their wills. We, of course, can never know when that's going to happen in the lives of our supporters. So having the legacy message in people's minds, in front of people on a, what we call a drip-drip basis or a recurring basis, just repeating that message gently over the course of the year, over the course of many of the different communications, does keep the legacy message in mind. So when those moments happen in someone's life, or they're just very organized and proactive, then <laughs> they go to update their wills, yeah. which a lot of people were doing during the pandemic. That's why we saw such a spike in legacy interest you keep in mind, basic that they'll keep you in mind. So when hopefully their advisor or lawyer says, is there a charity that you'd like to include? Is there somewhere special, something that you hold dear? They'll think, oh, actually, yeah, I, I did see something in an Oxfam newsletter, or, you know, the Dog Guide Society did say something about that. Or I remember, because still the very number one reason that people don't leave legacies, it's when asked, is because they feel that nobody ever asked them to. Mm-hmm. Right? So, It's just that simple of a communication.
0: I love that. So it's the frequency and just the frequency. It's a gentle nudge is what it is, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. And of course, we also do specific appeals and campaigns during the year. Sometimes some of our clients will follow those up with a telephone call. We'll have a whole series of different stewardship pieces that can go. That's when you're kind of getting a bit more budget, right? And a few more human resources, a few more humans to follow up, right? But it would break my heart to think of anybody not starting talking about legacy fundraising with their supporters in this time because they don't have a big budget. Mm-hmm. And they don't think that they can because actually it's very simple to begin and to really actually run a pretty robust program over the years that does not have hundreds of thousands of dollars invested in it.
0: Yeah. And you're reminding me of a quote, and I can't remember who said it, someone profound. And it was something to the effect of, when is the best time to plant a tree 20 years ago? Yes, uh, right. When's the next yes. best time to plant a tree today? like This very this second. This very second yeah. right now. Yeah, I love that quote. And I think about that as legacy giving. Like, there, there may not be an immediate return on investment. Exactly. In fact, exactly we hope there isn't in so many ways because these are people yeah. who care about yes. us and we care yes. about them yes. yes but inevitably there will come a time when that lifelong care and commitment to your organization does have this moment that can it's be bookended. yeah it can yes. be this exclamation yes. point on a life of yes. just beautifully lived yes
1: absolutely that is completely true and i think you just also answered the question of why Legacy fundraising can sometimes not be resourced at an organization. And I think it is very much, there still may be some folks who worry about, I don't want to talk about death with my supporters. You know, they're just very shy of it in that way, which is a bit of a cultural thing about modern day North Americans and Westerners and stuff like that. We like to pretend, of course, that doesn't. But also because it's true, the income is not going to come in for, the very likely, numerous years. And like you say, we hope it doesn't, of course, in many ways. And so it can be hard with all of the competition for resources and all the great ideas and channels of fundraising. It can be hard to dedicate budget knowing that you're not going to see that income in return. It can be a hard decision. But I will tell you, there are so many organizations I've spoken to over the years who say, If we hadn't started doing legacy fundraising, we would have shut down at certain points because recession, economic downturns, whatever else could have happened. Just more and more people in their space asking for funds possibly, but annual programs drying up and it was 100% the legacies that kept them afloat during difficult Mm -hmm. times. So that's really like David Kravanchuk and I made a point for the last five or six years that we speak wherever we can about legacies, and it's for this very reason really it's for this very reason we don't really know we're in unpredictable times we don't know what lies ahead you know I know that giving USA reportedly that showed a real downturn in giving our clients haven't noticed it themselves except now we are seeing more difficulty in terms of prospecting for new donors certainly but I think that economically all of us are facing some shortage in income probably this year. And if you think about that kind of thing in the future, it is legacies that can sustain a lot of these organizations. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, you know, I think, too, the part of the problem may be that we think about fundraising vehicles like plan giving or major gifts or monthly giving or so on. We think of them in silos.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Whereas, as you talk about the drip drip, like just dripping a little legacy message in the annual appeal or that newsletter or certainly for those of us who have some donors that are being managed in a portfolio those are the dual conversations to have yes
1: yes yeah yeah i completely agree i think if people can get themselves into the mindset of legacy giving being a beautiful opportunity as opposed to something awkward i don't really want to bring up in this conversation you know that kind of thing i think that it can be so much more helpful Mm
0: -hmm. yeah totally agreed there are a lot of ways to give a planned gift and some are pretty complicated
1: yes they are yeah so <laughs> there's
0: charitable remainder trusts or gift annuities and charitable lead trusts and those complexities can be intimidating for some organizations especially if they don't have that dedicated staff member who is an expert and so i just want to call out the distinction you made earlier between planned gifts which can include many of those more complicated vehicles and legacy gifts, which essentially are bequests gift in the state gifts yeah. and maybe life insurance policies. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yes. Because of those can go into wills as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those are the sort of area that I am very focused on is that the gift in the will. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The end gifts in the will can be a myriad of things that are in a will. Certainly. In terms of the technicalities, I as well find many of those ways of giving very complex. And so definitely who I call out is the amazing resources offered by, in Canada, the CAGP and certainly the National Association of Gift Planners in the United States for training and information and help and support on those areas because they are quite complicated. And I think it would take a lot for an organization to have one person Especially the smaller medium sized organizations, to have one person in place who is a legal expert, if you will, they're on taxes kind of thing, as well as being a fabulous marketer of legacies and a people person and all of that kind of thing. So I think that both those organizations of gift planners have done a great job in providing a lot of the resources and tools to feel more confident in that. And I do also have clients who kind of, um, one way that someone who's pretty committed to their organization might volunteer for them is being around to offer that kind of legal advice yes. on an ad hoc basis to people who'd like it.
0: Yeah. And I think too, I mean, from all the training that I've done, you know, as, as a nonprofit employee, as a fundraiser, we don't want to be giving legal advice or financial no, advice. So Even no. if we feel like we're an expert in that space, it is a conflict of interest for us.
1: It is a conflict of interest. And it's, it's just dicey water, right? It's just dicey water. In fact, when I do copywriting around legacies and one of the things that I speak on and train on is kind of the five, most five to ten, in fact, typical concern that people have and that you always want to address in copy. Trust is a huge thing. So one of the things we repeat in our copywriting over and over when it comes to legacies is please speak with your family and also that your lawyer and financial advisor is the person to talk to about naming us in your will, all you need to do is take to that person our charitable name, here's our number and here's our address. Mm -hmm. But we are always referring them to go and speak to an expert for that very reason, conflict of interest and not wanting to give advice that might be incorrect. Yeah,
0: so good. So good for everyone to hear. So what do you see as the biggest concerns or barriers around legacy giving for organizations? And then in contrast, part two, the biggest Concerns or barriers from the donor's point of view.
1: Sure. I think for organizations, it is that it's hard not to see income come back instantly. Yeah, I think also added to that is the conundrum, and I really hope people keep this in mind. No matter how great a job you do at promoting legacy giving and how much you inspire people to give, up to something around four out of five people are never going to let you know. That's just the way it is. And I often like to use my mom as an example of our kind of typical legacy donor, because she's a person who's always been a huge supporter of charities, but a lady of limited means. She made a $500 donation recently to the doctor that saved her life at St. Paul's Hospital here in Vancouver. That was by and large, the largest donation she's ever made. If you added it all up over the years, I'm sure it would be, she's kind of one of those super loyals, right? No one gift is going to trigger to thinking that that's a person that you're going to spend hours with on the phone, but it's uh, it's those super loyals that I particularly really love. But she has five charities, I think, in her will that she's told us about. Each of them, and what I really love about this is each of them is really personal. Each of those reasons is really personal. So she has Canadian Cancer Society in her will because her mother died of cancer Mm -hmm. and many loved ones died of cancer. She Mm -hmm. has this wonderful group home in the UK in her will because they took care of her sister who had suffered from brain damage for all of her adult life after her own family couldn't take care of her anymore. So they're in her will. The church is in her will. Covenant House is in her will because here in Vancouver, increasingly hard place to live. There's so many street kids and we do not want them on the street. Covenant House takes them in and provides them with so much amazing shelter and training and love. And Christian Children's Fund. She sponsored children all these years. So each of those has a deeply personal connection to her. So she is a pretty prolific legacy donor. But she also says, and I quote, Lynn, I would never dream of telling any of those charities that they're in my will. That is personal family business, Hmm. right? And so many people are like that. So I think one of the hurdles, as well as the fact that you're not going to see income immediately, one of the hurdles is the fact that even when we create these amazing legacy circles, even when we give great reasons for people to let us know, you know, no matter whether it's recognition or whether it's like, really, it helps us to know that kind of thing the vast majority of people are not going to let you know. So those are very hard things to put on a spreadsheet. And those can be hard things for some fundraisers to stand up and present to their board. certainly. But again, I think it comes back to how secure do you want your charity to be for the future? Mm -hmm. And legacy fundraising is probably the very best thing you can do to invest in that security.
0: I love that advice. And I wholeheartedly agree. Since they make a general decision at the board level to designate Planned gifts, legacy gifts to the endowment, and -hmm. then only to build that endowment to then spend off of the interest or investment income. Now, because they're board designated, they can also be board undesignated. Should you hit hard times, so I just feel like
1: that's just a all win. I was gonna say, yeah, that's right. That's right. There's no downside. It is the it's the Stephen Covey win win. Look for the win win. Yeah. And there, and I don't think there's a downside. I don't think there's downside. Now, the other part of your question was about what are the barriers to legacy giving from a donor's point of view? And the fabulous thing is that there's lots of great research that's helped identify some of these. Like we know from, I know slash we know from working with clients for 20 years and they'll share anonymously, of course, letters and comments and conversations from donors. So lots of kind of non-scientific but prolific gathering of comments and questions. But there's also great research done in Canada recently by CAGP and Environics, Russell James, of course, in the United States, Adrian Sargent in the UK. A lot of great research has been done into this. Uh, and what we've gathered together is we know that the top concerns that donors have One might be, I don't really want to talk about my death right now, but as we've talked about, we don't talk about death. I don't think we use any word similar to that in any of the copy we do for legacy fundraising. It is talking about how your values can live forever or your values and the things you love can live on. The biggest thing, I think, is that people think, oh, won't my family be upset that I'm taking money away from them, especially in these difficult times and giving it to a charity? So that's one of the things we need to address head on, and we do always in Legacy Company when I'm writing it. Is you know, speak with your family. Family comes first, but it makes a lot of people very, very proud to know that their loved one helped fund this incredible work, right? And wherever possible we will in our appeals we will have the signatory be someone who's left a gift in their will and they'll talk about how their children are proud of them they'll talk about having talked about it so again i think it's a trust issue we never want to be trying to be in a position where it even feels like we're trying to take something away from family members right another concern that people could have well it sounds complicated that's again we talk about go see your lawyer go see your advisor it's actually really simple here's the registered number and the name and the address that's all you need Mm -hmm. always saying that of course with any kind of fundraising we have to tackle the fourth concern which is aren't you just going to fritter away my gift so that's the stuff that we always do tabby of course which is showing impact and showing financial oversight and then the other reason that i think is so interesting is people say I thought leaving a gift to a charity in my will was just something that wealthy people do. Yeah. So we're kind of victims of our own fundraising and messaging in the past, right? Because we have been pretty focused on big givers in fundraising traditionally in North America. It's probably only the last sort of 15 years or so that we're starting to realize these gifts come from, you know, the teacher who'd been giving $20 a month for the last few years, and monthly donors to, to find legacy supporters. And so we tackled all of those concerns. We make sure when I'm writing copy, I literally have them above my desk. And our account managers are briefing copy to other copywriters. When they're redditing that copy, they have those five concerns above their desk. Make sure that you hit each one. So, yeah. So those are the biggest concerns. And then it all comes back again, though, to nobody's ever asked me to.
0: Yes. right. It's so good, though, to understand the concerns from the donor's perspectives. Yes. And What's such lovely ways that you've and words you've given us to help navigate that and ensure the integrity of being the shepherd along that path. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. First T of Greater Accra needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Here's executive director Josh Smith sharing what he likes about Bloomerang.
1: We love Bloomerang because it's so like it's very user-friendly. We're able to do more because our daily tasks of thanking donors and sending thank you notes have been cut more than half because of Bloomerang year over year, we have raised more funds. So obviously I think Bloomerang has been a a huge part of that.
0: By investing in a donor management system that they actually love using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com forward slash intentional or click the link in the show notes. I think it's lovely.
1: And you know I think that's a great word to use in all fundraising and particularly this type of integrity. Never be doing something that you wouldn't want to be doing in front of an audience of five hundred people. Right. Yes. Or speaking to this person who and if you didn't feel comfortable that their son and daughter were standing in the room too, right? Absolutely.
0: Or yeah. that this was your mother or your father or someone yeah. you love. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that we hear the giving USA data. Which, as you said, was released a little bit earlier this week. And I've been semi obsessed with the book Generosity Crisis, Nathan Chappell and Brian Crimmins, yep. and their assessment of the Giving USA data with the AFP fundraising effectiveness data and other sources of data that has really illuminated that up until 2022, giving has gradually continued to increase. And of course, during the pandemic, was a 6% increase.
1: Massively. Yes. Doesn't that warm your heart, though? Yeah. Right. So, you know, because we're concerned, I am the same as you, but just interjecting, doesn't that warm your heart? It's, it will always warm my heart thinking about how during the pandemic giving increased. Yes.
0: Well, there's that saying that in good times people give, in bad times people give. In uncertain times, people hold off.
1: This is where we're at. That's 100% true. That's, I think that's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. That's a, it's the uncertainty.
0: It's the uncertainty of it all. We want to make a decision, but we don't feel like we have all the facts.
1: Yeah. We, can we hold on till next year? What's happening with interest rates? What's going to happen with property? The, all of that, yes, right? Yes, yes. Yeah.
0: And the generosity crisis information kind of reveals that we're really losing donors. So U.S. household giving. Is decreasing significantly. It's true here in the US. And even the CanadaHelps.org data shows that something smaller scale, but a similar yes. trend
1: yes. is happening yes. in
0: Canada. And that is that the donors that we're losing are donors that are giving $500 and below. The, those are the donors, those are the people, kind of the everyday people who are holding back and saying, What's going on?
1: what's going on? I need to pause and see how this all plays out. Ex- like, how exactly. does this play out?
0: Exactly. And so I said it first publicly at the Western Canada Fundraising Conference where we were just a few weeks ago. I said that monthly recurring giving can save philanthropy.
1: Absolutely. And I Absolutely. say it for
0: the reason that, again, that's the pipeline to our leadership giving, to our eventual major gifts for some people. But as you said, Those monthly givers have the highest potential and possibility, probability of making legacy gifts.
1: Absolutely. 100%. Those two things together, your legacy giving and your monthly giving, because the monthly giving doesn't feel like it's groceries or your $10 a month gift to such and such, or even $20 gift to such and such, right? You don't have to make that decision.
0: It doesn't feel sacrificial.
1: It doesn't. As opposed to like, oh, each year I try to give $1,500 to... X, Y, Z, that's just not going to happen this year because it's too hard, It's too hard. But I'm not going to go cancel my monthly donations because I feel okay about the $25. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. And so to bookend monthly giving and legacy giving, I think is one of the brightest, most brilliant things we can do for our organizations, but truly for our communities and the work
1: that we do. I think you're right, Tammy. And you know what? You just made me think again, how we kind of shifting our ideas about donor recruitment, right? Because back in the good old days, Tammy, that you and I remember, we were new donors. We were getting them at a profit. Then things changed a little bit. So we started to accept that they maybe would just break even and they had to go on to continue giving. To be worth the investment. And then we had to start accepting that there was maybe a cost of recruitment, right? So we've done all of those things. And thankfully, we have the data and the ability to see like, yes, it costs $25 to recruit this donor, but over the course, most of your donors stick around. And I'm thinking about Sam Laprod and her fabulous Griffin fundraising that does magic wizardry with these numbers for us. This donor is going to go on to give $600 over the course of their time. So it's absolutely worthwhile. And now I think the shift is even more so. Understanding all of that, using those tools like the Griffin, but also realizing that we are recruiting donors through all sorts of different ways, but with the goal that they become monthly and with the goal that they become legacies. So maybe we're not even just thinking anymore of them, that we're recruiting these donors for just quotation marks. Right. It's incredibly important to the annual program, Right. right? But it is 100% the pipeline to mid-level giving and to monthly giving and to legacies. And I 100% agree with you. The bookends of security for charities is monthly giving and is legacies.
0: So Lynn, as we start to wrap up here, tell us a story about one of your proudest Legacy Gift campaign successes.
1: Oh, okay. And I suspect this will be hard to choose. It is hard to choose. And you know what's interesting is that The successes that come to mind are very much not based on one particular campaign, because I guess, again, you know, the drip drip type situation. I was very proud. We started working with an Indigenous education organization called Inspire here in Canada about seven years ago or so. They started out with, I think, 19 donors they had on their database when we started out with them. And it's been absolutely amazing growth for an amazing organization. What I thought one thing that was quite beautiful was that within the first 12 to 15 months of starting the program they actually had their first legacy and that is how interested and passionate people felt about their cause but also the fact that the very smart fundraisers thinking of my friend Paul Klein who was starting it at the time was talking legacy fundraising right from the outset right some of these stories underpin some of the points that we were making before invest in something that you can't immediately see the returns to when i was in university worked for a little wildlife organization here in Canada. And all we sent out was three donor newsletters a year and a Christmas appeal. But in each of those newsletters, even like this is the Holy Dawn of time, as you know, can tell, they were talking about legacies. So when I moved to the UK after university, I lost track of these guys for a good 15 or 20 years. But when I bumped into A recent executive director one time, she told me that that organization had lost its charitable status just to do because part of their wildlife work was considered to be a threat to trappers and hunters. So the Canadian government pulled it. So they would have gone into a crisis because it's hard to recruit new donors without charitable status, except their legacies that they had secured, we had secured all those years ago, carried them through. That's amazing. And even more recently... Like I said, we put a profile of a legacy donor in every single newsletter for our clients. And the very first one we did for an animal charity recently, they had four people phone up and say, I want to do what that lady's done.
0: Amazing.
1: Yeah. I love those stories. All
0: right. So our listeners are going, I'll have what she's having. right? I want that.
1: (laughs) And they can have it.
0: (laughs) Yes. It's the drip, drip, the consistency. Exactly.
1: And when you're talking to a legacy supporter, maybe just ask if they would mind if you told their story, because in legacy fundraising, I think more than any other kind, it's really helpful if the person talking about it has also left a gift in their will themselves. People need to see themselves in the, you know, to sort of bust some of those myths, like this is only for the wealthy. Yeah. Right. They're like, this person's my neighbor. Yeah. That kind of thing.
0: Yeah. And I remember when I was working as a fundraising practitioner, we wanted to dispel the myths of who is the legacy donor. Right. And that it's not just little old, lovely, white haired couples. And so we did four videos. One was a single female entrepreneur who had left a life yeah. insurance policy naming my organization. We had a, a young couple with no kids. We had uh, two generations, a father and his daughter and how like generationally they had both included this organization. Yes, And then we had the traditional, adorable, amazing, very devoted older couple just talking about how much they love the organization, why it was important to them to include them in their legacy plans and again, just to tell their story.
1: That's great. What a great idea. That's such a good idea. Well, because then all sorts of different people can see themselves in those shoes.
0: Yeah, indeed. Indeed. It all comes down to just building those relationships and showing humanity.
1: Yeah, I think so. And not being scared of this area of fundraising, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. And having the courage to invest in something that's going to sustain you in the future, but you might not see, hopefully, in a way, by the end of this year.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah. And so... You know, we ta- have a lot of
0: conversations about measuring beyond just revenue. And absolutely. while to your earlier point, you may not know when someone includes you in their estate plans or their legacy plans, but certainly one of the measures could be signed letters of intent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Absolutely. Even knowing that it won't show the full breadth of who's supporting you, but at yeah. least it's something yeah. to show.
1: It is absolutely something to show. And I think once legacy income starts to kick in, some of them can be so much more significant than you think. It's the confidence that comes with realizing one bequest, right? And realizing, oh, that was a monthly supporter or that was a you know another great group of legacy donors comes from long-term volunteers, and especially if they volunteer plus donate, right? So as soon as income starts to kick in, I think people become more comfortable investing in this area. But certainly, please don't hold off on starting to talk to donors about this until you have a, a big budget. Yes,
0: yes. Because that could be forever. Yeah, it could be forever. It's like, it's, this, sometimes there's a chicken and the egg. Yes. And I think it's really clear. If you don't plant these seeds, you won't have the harvest. Yeah. The yeah. harvest doesn't magically appear. I mean, occasionally you get lucky. Maybe a bird flies over and drops a little nugget of corn and you get a stall. <laughs> and that's right. That's, you, but for the most part, you have to do the planning farmer. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, so fun, Lynn. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah. Like I said, I will talk and write about legacies anytime anyone will listen to me. Thank you for listening to me for Tabby. Fabulous. It's been a joy. So as we wrap
0: up, I usually like to ask a series of rapid fire questions just to give a little extra value and insight to our listeners. Sure. Are you, your game? You're in. Don't worry. No.
1: Okay. Okay. You okay. know better.
0: <laughs> so first question, what's the best fundraising advice
1: you've ever received? Okay. I love this piece of advice and I'm trying to remember, it might have come from Stephen Pigeon. Not sure, but it's someone like that. So that comes to mind is whatever you do, however big you grow, try to retain that energy and that passion and that vision you had the night before you became an official charity. Mm. Because we lose so much as we grow, right? We start to have to have HR departments and policies and processes, and we automate things, right? But try to keep that passion that happened when you and a group of your friends or your family, or maybe just you, saw a problem in the world that needed someone to address it and you had the courage to take on that problem try to keep that passion from the night before you started becoming an official charity Mm,
0: yeah maybe start the morning or before going into a tough meeting like let me go back to that moment
1: yeah Mm. that kitchen
0: table moment right yes or whatever it was yes yeah yes Lynn what book do you recommend to our audience and why
1: Well, I'd be a little crazy if I didn't say there was a fabulous new book released just last year by my guy, Harvey McKinnon, my boss, lovely Harvey McKinnon, who's written many, but The Healthy Nonprofit. And I think that is a very fun book because it's not talking about the technicalities of fundraising, but it's quotes and inspiration on leadership and on success in these crazy times. So that is a really good one. And in terms of non-fundraising, though, This is one thing I always like to tell people about. We all know Stephen Covey, right, and his 10 Habits of Highly Effective People. But a lot of people don't know that his son wrote The Seven Habits of Happy Kids. So he kind of took those ideas around The Seven Habits of Successful People and turned it to a book for kids, you know, kind of like with characters and simple stories. And it has been a staple of our household. Same lessons, right? Put first things first, and you made me think of it when you were talking about win wins, right? Mm-hmm. Those particular sure. habits, but for kids,
0: I so it's love great. That. Of course, I've read that book years and years ago, but when this kid version came out, my babies weren't babies anymore; they had flown. Yeah, but now I have grandchildren.
1: Oh yeah, it's a great book. All right. All right, and you know how stories teach us things, right? Especially when we're young. Oh
0: yeah. Well, I, I think my brain is
1: still dependent on stories and parables. Really,
0: turning anything, Tammy. I think that's what most of us remember too. Are the are the <laughs> stories?
1: You, if you wanted to ask me, please don't. If you wanted to ask me to list the seven habits, I would probably start to think of the kids' book, right? Because it's got the stories. Yeah. yeah. That's so good.
0: Glenn, yeah. what do you think are the three most important traits a successful fundraiser must possess?
1: That's an interesting that you asked that question because we just talked about that on our first episode of Raise and Shine actually with a with a donor because we wanted to hear her opinion on whether, you know, kind of technical training and extensive qualifications and things were the most important part with all because she's worked with a lot of fundraisers. And she, you know, those are obviously important and, and credibility very, very important. But she was talking from her point of view. And that was definitely someone who listens more than they talk in a way right so the whole adage of we have two ears and one mouth kind of but that was because to understand the donor right and especially donors that you're working with one-on-one same as we talked about with legacies a bit what is important to them like why are they having this conversation with you what part of them or what part of their story have they come to you to help be a Dream Broker for? What are their concerns? Yeah, And just things like, is this a family affair? Is this family giving or is this one particular person and why? So really understanding the donors, taking the time to understand the donors, certainly being a people person, being comfortable speaking with people. I've noticed over time that particularly in the world of major donor fundraisers, many charities will recruit fantastic desk researchers and fantastic writers who write brilliant cases for support. And those are important people to have. But if you're not comfortable picking up the phone and talking to somebody, or you're not comfortable walking into a room and introducing yourself to strangers, and these are hard things. Yeah, it's hard things, right? If you're not comfortable with people, then I don't think fundraising is necessarily going to work for you as much in terms of being a people-to-people fundraiser. And I would even go so far as to say, if you're comfortable talking about money, because when I first started working at Harvey & Associates, one of the very first meetings we had, I thought it was brilliant. Harvey used to run this session where it was like, we can't be asking for money if we haven't already kind of figured out our own baggage around money. Because as you know, money
0: is a Pandora's box, right? Or
1: it is the lever that can open a Pandora's box. So there's all sorts of things that discussions around money trigger for people. So I think having done the work around yourself and your own attitudes towards money is super important. And then I would say the other thought that comes to mind is a little being kind of having that skill that good journalists have where they can kind of see the story, you know, or they can kind of pluck, oh, that's the thing. So I'm just thinking about all the people that I've interviewed over the years or all the sort of doctors you've interviewed talking about this latest piece of medical equipment, right? All of these people you're speaking to, whether it's the donors or whether it's on the mission side and the ability to go, Oh, that's it. Oh, that's it. Now that's why someone is going to give me a thousand dollars towards this ultrasound because of that moment when you're in the hospital with your child and blah, 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 blah happens, right? It's kind of the ability to get, and you know, you get the tingles down your back, right? So it's kind of the ability to sense those moments, I think are really, really key.
0: And one and two or one and three definitely go together because unless you're listening, that moment will will, will just fly by you. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So good.
0: Your favorite fundraising application or tool?
1: Oh, my goodness. The pen, the mighty pen, Tammy. I'm going to go over to the mighty pen. And then I guess the second one, completely different than the mighty pen, because I am a direct marketing dork, would be the database.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Those are yeah. two big ones.
1: Yeah. What's your favorite
0: fundraising conference? And boy, oh, boy, is that going to get you in trouble? <laughs>
1: oh, that's, a, that's a scary one. I have to go for the Western Canada Fundraising Conference. You and I have been together there before and recently, and both had big smiles on our faces as we left. And I think you said it best that it's got this family atmosphere and everybody comes to it ready to learn and to share as much as learn. Open hearts, open minds, and just a fabulous, fabulous energy to that.
0: Yeah, it is very, very special.
1: And we certainly welcome our American cousins to come to them. Yes. I'm sure that is fine with the organizers.
0: I can attest. They let me across the border (laughs) and welcomed me very warmly. So we'll include a link to the 2024 Western Canada Fundraising Conference in the show notes. It just completed a few weeks ago. As Lynn and I shared, we were both there speaking. And so the dates are late May. It's going to be in Winnipeg. And the early, like the extra early, early bird rate is still going on. So We'll drop the link in the show notes just in case you want to check it out. All right. Final question, Lynn. This one we could cue music on. The Jeopardy music or whatever your favorite (laughs) little tune is. Knowing what you know now about fundraising, what advice would you give your younger self just getting started in the profession?
1: Oh, you know, in any, any aspect of life, I feel like I would tell my younger self to just believe in yourself, mm. right? Just 100% believe in yourself. As I think that's everything. Like I remember when my dad left this mortal coil a couple of years ago, but I was thinking the other day that he gave me this advice that had changed my life. I don't know, when a young teenager, I suppose, where he said, Lynn, people just have a habit of following people. Just act the way you want people to perceive you. Act confident. People will believe it. And then that's going to turn into confidence. Yeah right? Which was another way, I think, of saying, believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Believe in your uniqueness. And if I wanted to be sort of technical to the point that to the world of fundraising, I think I would say, if possible, work somewhere where you can wear many hats. Work at a small to medium-sized organization where everybody pitches in, because then you're going to understand, compared to working for a huge siloed organization, and of course, you know, you and I spent going to stop those silos, but they still seem to spread up when we're not looking but working for a small or medium-sized charity, when you get to wear many hats and you're all pitching in to help, and for example, the first I worked at a cancer charity in the UK, and certainly I was the sort of annual giving direct mail appeals person, but when there was an event on, we were all events fundraisers. And if we were giving a corporate pitch, we were all corporate fundraisers, right? And we were all community fundraisers at certain time. And I think the value of that is you see how all of this works together, right? though you don't just understand how your one particular type of fundraising works, you understand how that works in the context of the bigger picture, I think. And you understand that the donors are at the heart of it all.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because they don't see us as silos. They see us like in a holistic way, like through their eyes, through their journey. I love that advice. And I love all the advice and the tidbits and the learnings that you've been so generous to share with us today. Thank you, Lynn. And now for a final word from our sponsor. Thank you to our friends at Bloomerang for supporting this episode. If you'd like to learn more about how Bloomerang can help your nonprofit acquire, retain, and engage donors, or learn how First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds in the first year with Bloomerang, head over to bloomerang.com forward slash intentional, or click the link in the show notes.
1: Thank you, Tammy. I have loved being here.
0: Very good. If you want to learn more about Lynn, her incredible work at Harvey McKinnon Associates, or maybe to follow her new podcast, Raise and Shine, or social media handles, we've included links in the show notes, as well as links to all the other resources that we've talked about today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Intentional Fundraiser Podcast. Keep on transforming your fundraising so you can transform the world. The Intentional Fundraiser Podcast is a Fundraising Transformed original. It's hosted by me, Tammy Zonker, founder and president of Fundraising Transformed, where we help equip and empower fundraisers, nonprofit leaders, and board members to transform their fundraising so they can transform the world. Visit fundraisingtransformed.com slash podcast to subscribe to this podcast and subscribe to my newsletter to get fundraising lessons, tools, and helpful resources delivered straight to your inbox each month. If you want my help with taking your fundraising to the next level, become a member of my Fundraising Transformers community as a growth member and join me live each month where I'll teach you the same strategies I use to lead, train, and coach thousands of nonprofits, social service organizations, healthcare foundations, private schools, colleges, and universities to collectively raise more than a half billion dollars including a single gift of 27.1 million. As a member, you can participate in my Ask Me Anything sessions every month and get answers to your burning questions. Chat with other growth members inside our private and safe online community about what you're working on, struggling with, and share lessons learned. And get instant access to my growing library of on-demand self-paced training classes. New content is added every single month. Learn more about becoming a member at fundraisingtransform.com/growth. Talk soon.